0: Greetings and salutations, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. CJ here, your renaissance man for the new dark age. Back with another dose of Dangerous History. And this episode of the Dangerous History podcast is actually a crossover episode with Brett Finott and the School Sucks podcast. What happened was that sparked this episode was that I had posted, I don't know, a week or two ago, something on my personal Facebook account, basically just kind of like a griping post. And the context was I had just finished up grading my first big exams of this current semester in my classes, and many of them were just abysmal. And it seems like every semester, the percentage of people who just do terribly creeps up every single time. And so I wrote a post kind of griping about that and alluding to the fact that there are other things annoying me in terms of my day job as well. And Brett got in touch with me and invited me on the School Sucks podcast to basically explore some of this because he hasn't really had anyone on his show looking at the sort of angle of education that I work in in my day job, basically a community college, sort of a college And so, you know, he's had a lot of people on talking about different aspects of public school in K through 12 and some people on talking about various aspects of kind of the big university level, but never from my perspective. So I was happy to come on and talk with him. And then I was also happy to release our conversation as an episode of my podcast as well. So if you've already listened to this episode on Brett's feed, the conversation is going to be the same. There's nothing new there. You don't have to listen to it again unless you desperately want to for some reason. but. Also, I just want to say, if you're not someone who already listens to and subscribes to School Sucks, all I could say is, what's wrong with you? And go listen to and subscribe to that podcast right away. It's been one of my favorite podcasts for many years since before I started this podcast. So it's always been really cool for me every time I've talked to or collaborated with Brett. It's just been neat because I look at him as a pretty OG podcaster going way back. You know, he's been doing his podcast about twice as long as I've been doing mine. And like I said, been a big fan of his work for a long time. And he's one of like the two or three podcasts that more than any others inspired me to start doing my own. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation and I hope you, you find it interesting. A little kind of inside baseball on, What things are looking like from my perspective at my day job? And I just want to emphasize here something I think I mentioned in our conversation, too, which is this is one person's perspective at one school in one department in one subject area. So, you know, I'm sure. Much of what I say doesn't apply to people working in different but similar class colleges and in different states where there's different rules on certain things. And I'm sure it's also different even. Even within my same college or within another college right next door in the same state, I'm sure in a different department, in a different subject area, things are different. But I think some of the trends we talk about here are probably pretty across the board, particularly when it comes to students seeming to be less and less prepared to kind of deal with basic college tasks. So we ended up, even though we recorded this conversation in, you know, one long take, we spoke for like a couple of hours, we ended up breaking it into two separate segments, two separate episodes to make it more digestible. And the first part deals with kind of the institutional issues that are bugging me. And the second part deals with the issues coming from the students themselves. In other words, some of the unsettling trends I've noticed over the past decade plus amongst the students walking into my classrooms. And so this is going to be the first half of our conversation dealing with the more institutional level of things. And then next time will be the other half of our conversation dealing with the students and their issues and some negative trends I see among them. So anyway, big thanks to Brett for having me on, and I'm looking forward to collaborating with him on some other stuff coming up in the relatively near future. So stay tuned for that. And here we go. Welcome back to School Sucks. Hey, thanks for inviting me back on. It's good to talk to you, Brett. Absolutely. How are things going down there in Florida? It is already uh, late spring currently. (laughs) It's 85 degrees, but it's a nice 85. It's not quite as swampy as it'll be in a few months, so it's still relatively comfortable.
1: Yeah, it's a nice 35 here. There is such a thing as a nice 35. Celsius, right? (laughs) Kelvin? Unfortunately, no. But it's enough to, to to get outside and have it not be scary. I wanted to talk to you today. It's got a conversation that I wanted to expand on uh, after we had our first show back in June at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. But I uh, saw a post you made on Facebook, and it read, Somehow my teaching day job manages to get more and more soul-crushing each semester. Among the many, many reasons for this, there seems to be a reverse Flynn effect taking place over time, among the students who walk into my classroom. Dot, dot, dot. And you opened it up for comments at that point. So for those who are unfamiliar with CJ, Professor CJ of the Dangerous History podcast, I'm sure maybe there's a couple people who are. What is your day job? And uh, then let's get into why it is getting more and more soul crushing.
0: Okay. So my day job, I'm sort of like the Batman of history in that (laughs) During the day, I'm um, just some, you know, average, interchangeable uh, history instructor of low-level college history classes. I'm basically the history professor equivalent of like a non-commissioned officer in mm-hmm. academia in that I do not have a PhD. I have a master's degree, but no PhD. And so the only college-level positions that you can qualify for that are full-time with those qualifications in most uh, subjects is full-time teaching at basically a community college, although they're, they're usually not called that anymore these days. So that's that's the gig I have and that I've had for, I guess, like 12 years now. It's it's the best you can do within the standard institutional academic framework with just a master's degree. And in fact, it's hard even with the master's degree to get the job that I have. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that have the same job I have that have a PhD, mm. but I'm kind of like as high as you can get within the official academia um, with just a master's degree. Gotcha.
1: And, you know, the community colleges are a huge segment of students, especially for their first and second year college students.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a giant and it's often overlooked. It's an often overlooked aspect of our education system, like tons of attention and resources gets paid to K through 12 and then tons to the actual like universities. And I'm not always saying this is done, you know, well or effectively, obviously, but just in terms of like people's priorities, politicians, priorities, bureaucrats, priorities, whatever the community college or increasingly these days, their their they're state colleges is what they're called as opposed to state universities, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of them do have like a few bachelor's programs now and that sort of thing, but it's mostly, it's mostly, you know, two year students and things, hmm. but, we kind of get left out, even though, like you said like it 's a big deal in terms of the numbers of people that go there, uh, particularly because dual enrollment is now huge throughout much of the country, where a significant number of high school students, if they 're at all decent you know grade wise sort of students, are doing college courses while they 're still in high school, typically they 're doing it with whatever's the nearest you know community college or state college to where they 're at so it 's a big deal and it's a it 's a very different thing in a lot of ways from. Uh, the big universities, you know, a lot of the crazy like SJW extremism and whatever, like that's not really a thing on these sorts of colleges. Right. Uh,
1: It's not really a thing on most college campuses. I think it's something that's highlighted, accentuated and even exaggerated by a lot of hostile media. And I will throw myself into that group. I've certainly taken the bait on these stories before. And I think one of the re- it's unfortunate that all of that is happening with a certain population of college students. But what's really unfortunate is it's kind of becoming the face of higher education, which means that on the one hand, on the optimistic, positive side, it is distracting from a lot of the good things that are happening in higher education, like here in Pittsburgh, we have Carnegie Mellon University, which has like an amazing robotics program and is certainly graduating a lot of young people into very promising entry-level positions in the expanding tech sector in this city. So it's not like the whole umbrella of college and summing it up with wasted money and SJWs is kind of unfair. The negative aspect of that is it is distracting. The social justice war is distracting from a lot of the other problems. In higher education. They're political, they're economic, they have to do with, um, you know, the way things are are being taught or not being taught, the level of preparedness that students come to college with, thinking that college is going to be, you know, an answer educationally, even, even though no finger quotes educational answers have come thus far after 15,000 hours of public schooling, but suddenly there's going to be some magical transformation in these four years. And that's leading leading to a lot of students either graduating in huge amounts of debt with a lot of disappointment or not graduating from college at all. So there's a lot of things the SJWs are getting out in front of right now that I also think people concerned about the state of higher education should be talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more going on than than just that, although, you know, that does deserve some attention, all that extreme stuff, because it tends to be disproportionately elite universities and... These are the people who are going to, on average, be in higher positions within within our institutions, you know, a decade or two down the road. They're going to be like running a lot of the the governmental institutions and educational institutions. So, oh, dare
1: dare I predict they're going to be getting elected to Congress. Right about now. Yeah, that, that could
0: happen. <laughs> right. At least in some, some particular districts.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and that is just a, a microcosm of the whole long march through the institution. While a lot of humanities degrees are falling off, I've, I've noticed like in the last 10 years, or I've read in the last 10 years, uh, humanities are less of a priority. And I think the economic downturn, people had to get realistic about what they were going to do if they were going to pay for continuing ed or higher ed. Most of the identity majors have maintained level since that time well history and english have fallen off things like african american studies or gender studies they're pretty much in in the same position they were 10 years ago if not expanding ever so slightly when people graduate with these majors you know they're told get back in there and get a law degree get a master's degree in political science or get into politics get into teaching Uh, So, yeah, there is going to be an expanding effect from these undergraduate programs. And as I've said on my show many times, I, I think it's fair to be concerned about this or it's right to be concerned about this because 100 years ago, all kinds of things were happening behind closed doors in higher education that wound up having, in many cases, a devastating effect on the 20th century. You know, starting at Columbia Teachers College, but going all over the Ivy Leagues and elsewhere and continuing right up until, you know, the 1960s at a lot of state universities where they were injecting behaviorism into the schools through research projects they were doing at those universities. And there was, you know, this nexus of government corporations and, and higher education. So it is wise to keep an eye on, <laughs> as I think you're saying, what is happening in higher education, even if it is. A minority of people who are participating in this agenda, because that's all it's ever taken in the past to make a big difference.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's like a trickle down effect, sort of, because everybody who graduates with an advanced degree from a super elite university is not going to be able to work at the at the super elite universities there's not enough jobs for them, and so they're going to go into positions of power and influence at maybe the less prestigious universities you know so right. people with with degrees from Ivy league schools may end up being tenured professors at like you know such and such state university and and so you know the, these sorts of things then kind of fan out from there sort of the way that academia works as this kind of like a guild system right absolutely so
1: you've been there a little bit longer than I have been sitting in this chair doing School Sucks, right? You started teaching 2006, 2007? Yes. Okay. So I'd like to set this up as a journey from then until now, right? Your post said your job gets more soul-crushing by the semester. In the beginning, what kind of optimism and enthusiasm did you bring to this work? I ask because, you know, I think about myself in 2009, looking out at a generation of young people saying, wait till you see how these people harness this technology and use it to change the world. You know, it was the first episode solutions episode I ever did of my podcast, like around episode 20. Uh, it was called Keys, and I actually teamed up with these guys who had this online education platform called Alla Keys, which was like a hub where people could come together and teach each other things. Uh, that site is now inactive, and I've also been, uh, I don't know, persuaded away from some of the optimism that I had for young people uh, based on my observations like over the last decade. So it's fair to say we were both in positions where (laughs) things were more rose colored 10 years ago for both of us. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it always is going to be that way when you're, when you're sort of new in a field or new in a career anyway, Um, every, I shouldn't say every, but almost every, you know, like first year, second year teacher is still full of um, idealism and optimism and all that sort of thing. And then just by the nature of the job, Sooner or later, you're going to be ground down until you end up like uh, Miss Krabappel, um, <laughs> right. Bart Simpson's teacher on The Simpsons, where, you know, you're just kind of worn out and burnt out and cynical and all that. And it, you know, depends on your personality and depends on the details of exactly where it is you work and exactly how many uh, negative things are being foisted upon you. But virtually any job is going to have some aspects to it that are not the reasons you got into it that you still have to deal with. You know, there's paperwork, there's bureaucracy, there's regulations, there's, you know, housekeeping chores to do and things like that. So part of it is just simply that stuff is always going to be there. But I mean, there's definitely been been changes. And, and just speaking about where I work and and everybody like keep this in mind like this is this is one person's experience at one particular school in one particular state in one particular subject area i'm not at all at all claiming that this is like going on the same trends i'm i'm going to talk about here and changes and things are are not happening everywhere uh, and they're not happening you know at the same rate everywhere that sort of thing you know part of this depends on like your state politics cuz these sorts of colleges are of course you know heavily influenced by whatever their state politics happen to be uh, up to so and and then of course it's different in different subject areas you know because all the different rules and things that that adjust kind of like what classes you can teach and what classes students are going to take and whatever those are all kind of unique to departments and and to different states and that sort of thing right and and also i, I just want to say sort of like as a, as a disclaimer too that there are still some good aspects to my job, I mean, I'm not, I'm not literally, you know, ready to just like hop off a bridge or something like that. The, the, I still have, at least where I work, and again, this may be different other other similar colleges. I still have a pretty fair amount of academic freedom in a way, within what classes I can teach. Like I, I don't have anyone who's micromanaging me and telling me like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. I still have my students read War is a Racket in U.S. history. Right. Um, I, I still like I do some pretty some pretty radical things that people might be surprised. Uh, and, and I don't really have any problems with doing that. And my immediate supervisors and administrators like they're pretty good as far as that goes. I really can't complain. The, the problems are, are like these bigger things. They're these trends and institutional things.
1: And I will say that just from our preliminary conversation about this, these things do scale to a national level, Uh, at least what we're going to talk about. Well, I mean, everything does, uh, because we're going to break this down into like institutional concerns and then student concerns, at least with respect to community colleges. And yeah, there are differences from state to state. There are some national reflections of the trends that you're going to be talking about in your state for sure.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's not unique to where I'm working. It's just it may not and it may not be the same everywhere. So, when I when I got into this, first off, I was pretty young because I was basically had just gotten my master's degree and I didn't I didn't take a lot of time off in between when I got my bachelor's and master's degree. I took off, you know, maybe the equivalent of like a semester mm-hmm. before I started my master's degree. And I, and I wrapped up my master's degree pretty quickly, two years. I didn't, you know, dilly dally with it and then was teaching. Now I taught for one year at a couple of private schools, private colleges, which would hire me as an adjunct with a master's, but would never hire me uh, for full-time without a PhD Right. Um, simply to, simply to pay bills while I tried to figure out a full-time gig. So. That, that's a different that's a different ball game because you're at a you're at a um a small private college where you have even more academic freedom and where you know there's an admission standard for students to get in. It's not like a community college where anybody with the ability to pay for a class and a uh, high school diploma or GED gets in you know Mm. um when you're at when you're at a private school it's like they they at least have to have certain qualifications in terms of grades and test scores and all that right so so that was that was a different experience i expected it would be different when i got a full-time job at a community college and it was but on the other hand I, i didn't find it as different as it would be i think today and what i mean by that is when i started first off the students i was teaching were only like half a generation younger than I was. I mean, we're talking when I first started teaching, um, I would have I would have been twenty five. Right. Yeah. And I have students who are 18, 19. Yeah. Yeah. And and so part of it is just naturally I, I, I related to them and they related to me more naturally. And um, you know, it was it was easier. And I mean just little things. Like they would get certain pop culture references that my students today might not get. Um, but also, you know, when I think about it, there's, there was less gaps in terms of like, these were still mostly people who hadn't had cell phones, smartphones, since they were infants, um, and who hadn't grown up on social media. Yeah. And I think that's a factor.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, I was, Um, I was just kind of thinking about my experience too. I wasn't teaching in college, but I became a teacher when I was 22 or 23 years old, I started working with teenagers when I was 21. So the age difference between me and some of the kids in, in this boarding school was like two or three years. It was at a time. I mean, that was in the year 2000, 2001. So yeah, we had... I mean, despite a lot of the difficulties that these kids had endured in their lives, we had been raised in the same world, right? Like the the game has very much changed today where if we're in our late 30s, early 40s, and we're looking at some of these younger kids, they have grown up in a completely different world than the one in which you and I grew up in. So, yeah, that's yeah. obviously a factor, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the students, like that's, that's where I was at, you know, my early years of teaching is like, I was, I was not that distant from them in age or in like just my overall experience of growing up and what things I was exposed to and not. And um, also I found that there wasn't quite as dramatic of a difference going from a, a private college to a community college, as I expected in terms of like student preparedness for college and, you know, just the from what I could tell of like what students have been exposed to in terms of ideas that would have prepared them for my class. Because even if there's no formal prerequisites to take a class, there are always assumed prerequisites. Like I'm assuming that a student coming into my class can read and write at a college level. I'm assuming that they have a decent enough vocabulary to understand most of the terminology I'm using in class when I'm speaking about like history and politics and that sort of thing. Um, I understand that there's probably a lot of things they haven't been. And, and I, you know, always will try to explain a term that I, that I think they probably haven't been exposed to or something like that. But I, I was able to, I don't know, it seemed, it seemed like there were still a fair amount of students, even, even at community college, who were ready, both in terms of their knowledge and skill set, and then also in terms of like having the proper attitude and expectations of like what it's going to take to get through to get through college, to pass college classes. Right. And then that gradually started to change. And, and I guess, you know, we can talk about that in more in more detail a little bit later on.
1: Yeah. Let's zoom out and do the the institutional changes first. Um, sure. You mentioned to me a reduction or there has been a reduction in the variety of history classes that you're able to teach or the number of classes students are able to to take with you what do you attribute
0: that to? Right. That's something that has changed. I used to teach cause I, I have to teach intro level courses cause that's what we can offer. Right. So I can't teach like 3000, 4000 level, you know, junior and senior uh, history courses, but that said I could teach first two year level history courses. And so I had five courses, five different courses That I would teach and I would teach them all relatively regularly. Now, some of them I would teach more often than others because they got more numbers of students. You know, they were more popular or they met certain gen ed requirements or whatever. But I had, I had U.S. history one and two. So, you know, the first one is U.S. history up until reconstruction after the Civil War. And then U.S. history two is U.S. history since reconstruction. And then I had world civ one and world civ two. And the dividing line there was around the year 1600 Mm -hmm. AD. So, you know, world civ one would be like ancient civilizations up through around 1600 world civ two would be the last 400 years of world history. Um, So that's four. And then I had one more that I started doing after a while, which is history of Florida. Mm. And that gave me some variety where I was teaching a variety of courses in any given semester that made it more fun and interesting for me because I'm not just teaching the same exact thing a million times over and over and over again. So, you know, that just kind of made my my job more interesting and stimulating and satisfying from my perspective to teach different things. And also, students, the ones who liked me and liked history a lot would be able to take a bunch of classes with me. And so I would have the same students, if they liked me and liked my classes, they'd take three, four, maybe five classes with me. Mm-hmm. And that really made it I think, mutually beneficial where we got to know each other. We established, you know, more and more of a rapport every class that we had together. You know, you get to know them, they get to know you. And as a teacher, that makes your job way more um, positive and satisfying when you have that sort of relationship. And and I think it's good for the students, too.
1: Yeah. And when round two comes around, it's like the expectations are already laid out. I mean, history was my least favorite subject in high school I dreaded taking it in college because it was part of the core curriculum so you had to take like a government and one history class um, the department head who taught a lot I went to a small college so the department head actually taught a lot of the classes he had a reputation for being terribly difficult and I put it off as because I wasn't really in college to uh, achieve you know I was there to get through the four years and get a degree And I didn't have any interest in this. I had negative interest in the subject. So uh, I waited until the second semester, I think, of my sophomore year to start taking his classes. And after that, against people's advice, I was taking two of his classes every semester just so I could get them all in before I graduated. And once that first one was out of the way and I understood what the expectations were, I understood how the grading worked, I understood what the, the classroom routine was, I couldn't wait for the next one. And he was a really transformative figure in my life. So yeah, it would have been a bummer if I only got the chance to see him once for 3 months.
0: Yeah, and I I had very similar experiences on my undergraduate degree as well. I went to a small liberal arts college and same thing, you know, you find certain professors that you really like them, you really like their classes and like it's nice to be able to take a bunch of classes with someone that you really, you know, enjoy um working with. And so that has been whittled, whittled down to where there's way less opportunity for me to teach the variety of classes I used to, and there's often less opportunity for students to take them. And, of course, these things are like self, self-reinforcing self things where if I have less opportunity to teach them, students have less opportunity to take them, and vice versa. If they have less opportunity to take them, then I'm not going to get the numbers in the classes where the college will let me keep offering those classes. Right. And ultimately, at least in my case, from what I can tell, and I, and I don't claim to be an expert or to, to really understand all this I don't really follow it all that closely, to be honest with you. But from what I understand, this trend, basically, a lot of it had to do with simply state politics in Tallahassee, and that there was pressure coming from the state government for colleges, especially of our type. Now, universities probably can still keep offering all kinds of varieties of classes. But for our type of college, basically, we were getting pressure, sometimes in the form of official you know, directives and things, mm-hmm. that we needed to basically like standardize our course offerings more and reduce them so in other words to to dramatically whittle down our list of courses that count for general education credits that sort of thing and you know for all i know this is happening in many other states but i just have no idea because i've never looked into it so i don't know but that was the trend coming from the state government and so what ended up happening was this in regard to the classes i teach now of of those four classes um, sorry, of those five classes I mentioned that I was teaching, all of them, except for history of Florida, could count for a gen ed requirement credit in social sciences, Right, which meant that a student could take either US 1 or US 2 or World Civ 1 or World Civ 2, World Civ 2 and any of those would satisfy a general education requirement credit. Well, when they made these changes a few years back, I want to say maybe like four years ago, five years ago. The net result ended up being that only one history class now is a gen ed requirement credit satisfying course. And so that one class is U.S. History 2. And so what ended up happening really fast was the number of students in my U.S. History 2 classes blew up. Yeah. And those those started to fill up. And then the numbers of students in all my other classes that used to be gen ed requirement courses and now are not dropped off a cliff. You know, I went from World Civ never got as many people as American history, but I would often get, you know, 10, 12 students in a World Civ class, and that was enough for the class to make for it to run. And then I started dropping off dramatically within a year or two. I was getting like four students in in a World Civ class. And eventually the college said, we can't let you keep running this class because it's not getting enough students to be financially viable. That's the main part of what happened to reduce what I could teach and what they can take. And also, my understanding is, and again, I could I could have this a little bit wrong, but basically that. Students who have certain types of funding have to only take certain classes that if they're if they have certain types of like grants or scholarships or other programs funding it, then that might say like, oh, we're only willing to fund the courses you take that are either directly tied into your degree or that are gen ed requirement courses. And so I started getting more and more students coming up to me when this change started to happen, saying to me flat out, I really love your class. I really would like to take some more classes with you but I can't. Right. Long story short, my other classes other than U.S. History 2 started just drying up. And now I do mostly just U.S. History 2 over and over and over again. The occasional U.S. History 1 course that is always you know, pretty darn empty and barely makes the cut, I haven't taught World Civ in a bunch of years, even though I loved it and the students who took it loved it. I, I haven't taught World Civ in probably now at least three years. And then my, my Florida history class that I've taught for a long time um, that one I eventually uh, had to do it online or else I couldn't do it. That's the bird's eye view of how things have been, you know, whittled down and, and narrowed down. Do you have any
1: idea why they picked US History 2 as the only one that would count?
0: I'm not 100% sure if that choice came from the state capitol or if that's, that choice came from like the higher ups in the college. To be honest with you, I can't really remember if I ever did know. So it's possible the state might have said, like, look, you have to pick one history course that's your gen ed course and that's it. And maybe for one reason or another, my college decided like, all right, uh, I guess it'll be this one. You know, one of the trends that I've
1: noticed, and this is nationwide, is a kind of devaluation of the history major And that is kind of wrapped up with humanities majors generally, especially over the last decade. But for uh, some majors like English, the trend goes back even further. It goes back to the 80s or 90s. Have you seen anything like that where you work or in any of the research you've done on a state level, national level, people are being... I mean, since 2008, the number of degrees, four-year degrees handed out
0: in history has fallen by 30%. Honestly, I, I never had very many history majors coming through my classes, even in the early days. I mean, a lot of the students that I get are basically undeclared. They're just, you know, going to punch out a two-year thing and maybe they'll go on to university. A lot of them will and, and some of them won't. And a fair number of them are dual enrollment students who are actually, you know, high school students who then come over and take some college courses. So a pretty good percentage of them don't really have a major yet.
1: Right, and that gives you some freedom too of of exploration, right? Because it can be your job just to spark up their interest in this subject. And if they're anything like, I think a lot of people coming out of high school, they probably don't have a very high level of
0: interest. No, most of most of them don't. And one thing that I've noticed, and maybe this goes into my my gripes about students, and I know I I'll, I'll probably sound somewhat just like a crotchety old man at that point, but students are less on average seem less receptive to my efforts to try to get them really interested than they used to be. And they were always like not predisposed to want to like my class. Right. You know? sure. They were always like mostly not history majors who who are just taking this thing to punch out a, a gen ed credit or whatever. Right. But I, I feel like I got a bigger percentage of them in years past who at least by like partway through the semester, I kind of got them on my side than now. I feel like they're, for probably a variety of reasons, they're, they're a little bit more resistant to that now than they used to be. But basically, you know, the idea is this has had a negative effect from my perspective, and I would assume also from the students, this this trend of giving students less options. And I know a similar thing was done in other social science departments, you know, political uh, social science sub-departments, sub political science sociology psychology that sort of thing a similar move was done where they reduced the variety of courses that students had available to choose to punch out gen ed requirement credits and i mean just think about what what you're doing basically you're reducing the options that students have so you're reducing their choice Mm -hmm. and you're also reducing the variety for the teachers which is reducing you know the part of what makes their job interesting and all that uh and and there's really no no rational reason for that decision that i can see it's, it's not like you're saving the college or the students any money because the students still have to take the same number of credits for a degree it's just now they have fewer options from which to you know pick the credits do you think that this pattern might have something to do
1: uh with performance based funding and i'll explain what i mean by the question so like let's just say you work at a two year institution and they have limited resources obviously like state funding Uh, State funding going to these schools has been decreasing steadily over the last decade. I think in that same period of time, no, maybe the last two decades, while tuition has tripled. Right. So there's obviously much more of a drive to get results with the money that they are getting from the state. So you're going to see resources devoted to things in more and more of these institutions like nursing or computer science, which have just like in the last decade seen huge increases in people completing those programs. Like they're up over 50 percent since not even the last decade, since like 2010. So they're pulling resources away from things that are less concrete.
0: Yeah, I mean, in general, I think there's been an increase in politicians and and bureaucrats and maybe sometimes even college administrators looking at college as basically just being a different kind of trade school as being just just purely you know direct job prep and that's it but but at the same time they're not they're not eliminating all the gen ed requirements like they're still requiring students to you know take take some uh, literature course and take some history course or whatever so it's this weird in between where you know it'd be one thing if you said all right we're going to get rid of all the gen ed stuff and basically like you only take classes in your Chosen career path that you're working towards. Now, there's there's pluses and minuses to that decision, but instead we're in this kind of halfway space where you still have to take stuff that's not directly related to a career, particularly if you're in one of the more job-oriented programs like nursing or something like that.
1: Do you know like how many like gen ed requirements there would be? Because that's a that's a busy, very demanding program. I wonder how many of these like just unrelated general ed classes they would want a person to take. It's a very broad question, I know, but. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, surprising. offhand, I don't have specifics, but they definitely have to take some. I mean, I get, I get nursing students coming through my class. And by the way, um, they're often, even though they're not predisposed to be interested in history, they're often very good students simply because, like, they, they sort of take it seriously. They sort of take, in general, what their, their college seriously, their, their schooling seriously. And so they often put in a good amount of effort. Even some of the nursing students who may not be naturally good at history will oftentimes still do all right just by just by taking it seriously and putting in some effort. Sure.
1: Since I mentioned it, do you think we can just talk a little bit about how performance-based funding, which sounds like a good thing on the surface, has negative unintended consequences? I mean, there's been two rounds of attempts in various states. I think more than half the states try to do this where they offer performance incentives for graduation. So people understand how the government funds things, right? Most of the funding is just incremental. Every year, there's an increase based on the previous year's budgets. And people also call this like if the projected increase is 7% and it goes to 6%, that is called a cut. Funding still goes up and people call that a cut. And then in addition to that, there's also on the state level, like formula funding, which would be they look at specifics. So beyond incremental funding, there would be like, there's this many students, there's this amount of square footage of buildings to maintain, there's this many faculty and staff, and there's a formula for additional funding on top of that. But performance-based funding has come in a couple of times and changed that up a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's true that the theory of performance-based funding sounds good and rational. And a lot of people who are more kind of on the conservative end of the spectrum will go like, yeah, we should, you know, hold these institutions and bureaucracies and agencies accountable and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we should, you'll sometimes hear people say things like, oh, we should run the government more like a private business or whatever. But there's, there's problems with that because it's not a private business. And the the biggest problem is that when you're talking about a government institution, right. And of course, this is, you know, we could, we could get off into the weeds with the anarchist case of why these things shouldn't exist and blah, 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 blah. We all know this, but, um, you know, just, just dealing within the framework of these things exist and, and how should they be organized and funded and whatever. When you say performance, you don't actually have, because it's not a free market situation and a free market institution, you can't, you can't say what performance really is because if I'm talking about like, let's say I, I run a, I don't know, I run a restaurant, right? Well, performance ultimately comes down to profit, which is driven by, you know, customers coming in and patronizing my restaurants and then me running the business efficiently enough that, that I end up with a profit when they're done, you know, paying for, for their services. So, so I can easily say like, who's, I can easily say if my restaurant is doing better or worse than last year. And I can also zoom it in and say like, all right, this waitress over here is tending to, you know, produce more than this waitress over there. And I could, you know, try to get the, the one that's not performing as well to shape up or else replace him or her or whatever. But the problem is with something like a state school that there really is no market feedback mechanism of profit and loss, that you could easily say, like, are you performing or not? So what ends up happening is that people end up having to pick various metrics. Right, right. And there's always a certain amount of arbitrariness in that decision. And by the way, this is the same criticism that I would make, and I'm sure you probably would too, against something like central planning of the economy in the Soviet Union, which is like, if you don't have a market feedback mechanism, how do you know how many shoes the factory should produce and of what type and what size how do you know you know the the what what the steel should be used for in your economy whether it should be used for one thing versus another and and what the communist party in the soviet union did was basically just issue arbitrary uh, goals and things like all right comrade you're going to make more steel this this quarter than you did last year you know and no sense of like does that even make sense to the overall economy there's no way to know
1: well the other there's other examples too that are a little more cartoony like a shoe factory would get a quota for pairs of shoes to produce and they would produce all children's shoes. Right because right? you could make more with the supplies that you had.
0: Yeah yeah well that that's that's the other that's the other problem with this idea of performance based funding that ties into the analogy to central planning which is people will always game the system whatever you set the signpost as we know this. So if you say all right guys your funding depends on Your students' test scores. Well, you're going to end up with a lot of people blatantly teaching to the test, and probably with a fair number of people, you know, cheating, and 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 facilitating cheating, because that's now what everything depends on. If you say your performance funding now depends on your graduation rate, okay, now sooner or later people are going to start watering down their standards to make sure more people graduate. Right. If you say your performance funding depends on, um student success as measured by by grades you're going to probably get a lot of grade inflation sure and i i would point people at if if they've never seen it in my opinion probably the most brilliant television series ever made ever is the um early 21st century show the wire by hbo hmm. and it's mostly about the baltimore police department but the different episodes also veer off and criticize other institutions of baltimore like there's a there's a great one I think it's season four that's absolutely brilliant where they actually spend a lot of time on the on the um, school system and there are other ones where they they look at other institutions of the city and they look at how things like these warped incentives that you get operate and distort things and so in the the one on education there's a lot about people teaching to the, to the tests and all the warped incentives you get from measuring everything by standardized test scores and and throughout the series with the police department. You get a lot of them dealing with this phenomenon of juking the stats where if the mayor tells the police department, OK, guys, I want the crime rate to go down. What's going to end up happening is things like police are going to underreport crimes. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and they're, they're going to report big crimes as less crimes. You know, they're going to they're going to turn a major theft into like a petty theft, you know, that kind of thing. They're going to turn a massive assault into like a minor misdemeanor charge or whatever. And they're going to look the other way on some crimes. Um, whenever I watch The Wire, and, and it's in my head because I just rewatched it a few months ago, and like every time I rewatch it, I like it better, and every time it resonates even more with me in terms of the warped incentives and the gaming of the system and the juking of the stats that you get in these sorts of uh, scenarios. Well, there's that problem, right? And there's other. I
1: mean, there's other examples like healthcare. They've tried performance pay models in healthcare. It wound up turning surgeons away. Uh, from people who were sicker or more in need, right? Because there's a higher chance of failure. There's also, I mean, in any centrally managed complex system, like the ones we're talking about, it assumes, I think, that all people are going to be rational, predictable, honest actors. And that's never the case. And the central management of the system itself discourages that. And it also... Increases the human factor. So, in elementary education, let's say, there's a goal to increase test scores. So, teachers have to teach to the test more and more, which subtracts from their love of teaching, which they pass on through their attitudes. I mean, I've seen videos of this and even used audio from those videos in past podcasts. They pass that lack of enthusiasm on to the students, right? Which lowers their desire to learn. And that is all about uh performance incentives ultimately translating down to the lowest level to a student who learned from his teacher to not be excited about education
0: yeah yeah it it increasingly dehumanizes education like, even more than it already has been right it takes away the potential for creativity and craftsmanship on the part of the teacher, and you know some people go into teaching because. It's the path of least resistance. It's a you know it's a steady paycheck and you get the summer off. Blah 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 blah. But a fair amount of people who go into teaching go into it for a significant amount of their motivation. It really is admirable. It really is like yeah, I, I I love helping people to learn things and you know I I love that experience of interacting with students and helping them to understand things better. And it's just very satisfying and positive. And when these systems evolve in this way, it takes all that that ability for creativity and enjoyment away. And there's so many studies that show that one of the biggest factors in people's happiness and satisfaction with their work or lack thereof is how much freedom they have within their job versus how much are they constrained. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally on the same page with you on this, this negative effect on morale, the more that you, again, often because of having to cater to these arbitrary metrics and and quantitative stat-based models of measuring things and whatever, that, yeah, you you reduce the teacher's freedom and you reduce morale. And again, anyone um, who hasn't seen it, check out The Wire. And I think it's season four where one of the guys who was a cop at the beginning of the series leaves that and becomes a public school teacher in a Baltimore inner city school. And, And it really does a brilliant job exploring that and also showing how that compares with what the police experience? what the same character experienced when he was a cop, as far as just having to, you know, cater to these performance metrics and outcome based everything and, and so forth.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm picturing Baltimore. Right. And I'm also attaching that to this call that we keep hearing that college should be available and free to everyone. You've certainly mm. heard this. And sure. I mean, the people who say that maybe that makes them feel better, you know, in quiet moments when they're riding around in the back of their limousines or whatever. But the unseen of that, I think, especially when you pair it with what we're talking about, performance-based funding, those people who were not prepared for college or were not on a college track otherwise being shuffled into these institutions, which we've seen plenty of over the last two decades, if those institutions are subject to performance-based funding, while they're taking people in who are not capable of you know, meeting the performance requirements. So then you have this like self-fulfilling situation where, yes, let this egalitarian everybody go to college thing, everybody in the door, everybody into college. Oh, you can't perform here. Oh, well, that's too bad. That's really too bad because we also have all these performance incentives. So the schools that serve that population would be getting, especially if they're, you know, state colleges, if they're community colleges, they're going to be getting their funding chopped away because of that. So that it's like a self-perpetuating, worsening problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think you put your finger right on it right there that, yeah, on the one hand, there's there's pressure for a variety of reasons, including just simple, you know, more students coming in means more tuition. There's there's a variety of incentives and pressures and things coming from various corners, including political ones of, of the egalitarian impulse, you know, get more people in college and more people will automatically be middle class, you know, um, rather than realizing that that relationship is more based on correlation than causation and yeah you end up recruiting more people but that doesn't mean that they all have the even just the right personality let alone all all the correct prerequisite skills and things to succeed and my feeling is if you recruit somebody into something like college and and they for one reason or another really shouldn't be there and there's a good chance they're not going to make it through successfully to a to a degree that's really in a way kind of abusive and, and and again, this is another theme that, that you get in the show, The Wire, I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but it's on my mind, where these institutions just, they're inherently abusive and dehumanizing in a way. And it's and it's not that everybody who's in them and any, everybody who's running them are bad people. I mean, some of them may be bad people. Some of them may be just careerists. Some of them may be incompetent. But some of them are, you know, at least trying to do the best that they can within their situation. But its it's like inherent it's an inherent systematic thing to the institutions themselves that it's it's in their nature to kind of be this way, to be kind of dehumanizing right. and um, abusive in a way.
1: Before we move on, the careful listener might have noticed that we just seem to be in a subtle agreement about more funding when I mentioned the underfunded institutions serving a less college-ready population— there was kind of an argument in there that more funding leads to better educational outcomes, which is obviously, you know, <laughs> blasphemy to our audiences. But in higher education, there is a strong correlation between, you know, the money an institution spends per student and outcomes. And an example would be, you know, I went to a small private school in Vermont. I studied a major that had a lot of technical aspects to it. The school did not have the funding to keep the program I was in up to date. Uh, considering the changes that were taking place in the real world, school had probably virtually no endowment. And that meant graduating with a degree, you know, that said the same thing as college degrees from better funded schools would say bachelor's of science in communication. But I had none of the skills that made me job ready in the 21st century. While somebody who had the same piece of paper from a better endowed school would have been, you know, and they might have even had connections to more professional opportunities through uh, a better funded school so in higher education it is fair to say that it does make quite a bit of difference
0: yeah i mean it do- it doesn't always i mean there's sure. obviously countless cases of colleges and universities you know frittering away mountains of money to like have the fanciest student rec center or whatever there is that um, right but but yeah certainly it can and certainly i mean colleges and universities again this may not be the most the most you know It's sort of damning with faint praise, but certainly colleges and universities on average tend to be at least a little bit better with using their funding in an effective way than do, do, you know, a lot of K through 12 schools. Absolutely. Absolutely. So
1: while we're still talking about institutional changes and challenges, you mentioned a while back in the conversation that this more elective course, uh, The History of Florida, you can now only teach online. And obviously, I've done a little bit of research on online education, because it's obviously picked up a lot in in the last 10 years. My research began when I was uh, still tutoring, so I would actually go to homes and help people work through you know, virtual charter schools or virtual college classes. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the effectiveness of online education. Now, obviously, it's very student-dependent, but how do you see it working from your experience in higher ed?
0: Well, my overall take on online education is that it can be a wonderful thing. And I mean, in a way, I mean as a as a as a podcaster at night, you know, when I put my Batman suit on. Right. That's basically what I'm doing, right? So, obviously, I must like it in some aspect, and I think it can be a wonderful wonderful thing that allows a good teacher to scale what they're doing in a way they never could before. I mean, literally You know, I have fans and supporters and so on, like all around the world, including in countries that surprise me, you know, and that's awesome. That's awesome to be able to have someone who is, at least in some people's opinion, good at teaching, be able to reach an audience far beyond a conventional classroom. And I think it's wonderful for the the learner to have that flexibility, you know, to to kind of potentially at least learn at their own pace and be self-directed and so on. But I would say that online education is only a good thing when it is in a very voluntary situation with an intrinsically self-motivated learner in which there is intrinsic motivation of some sort. In other words, the person actually really just wants to learn what it is you're trying to share with them. And as soon as you take online education and, and put it in the context of a less voluntary situation where... You know, particularly in my case, because like a lot of times students are just punching out credits, and they're not extra interested in the topic specifically. They're not in, innately curious about it or something. And then you add in the adversarial relationship that is automatically created when when you're grading somebody, and then yes. that completely in my opinion, ruins it. I, I do not like teaching online classes in the, the conventional institutional educational setting. I don't. And it's not because I have any kind of a problem with the technology and using it and whatever. I run a podcast, so obviously I don't have any issues. I'm not like some Luddite who's like, oh, I can't stand that technology and stuff. But when when it's when it's a less voluntary situation and it's not intrinsically motivated, self-directed learners, and and there's this element of grades involved, now it's all about gaming the system now, to a large extent, regular classes are about gaming the system for the student anyway because right. a lot of them just they just want their genetic credit or whatever it is, and they want to get that with the least amount of effort possible, which you know in practice often means they learn the least amount possible in order to just you know get that c minus or whatever it is they're they're satisfied with right but when you When you take that same relationship and you make it online, to me it makes it m- much worse because. First off, the opportunities for dishonesty on the part of the student for for cheating plagiarism, that sort of thing those opportunities go up now there's ways to mitigate that and i I have various methods I use in the online classes I do to to reduce or eliminate that, but even so, you're going to at least get more attempts at that than you ever would with a student who actually has to see you face to face and and you know meet you in person and, and deal with you in person on a regular basis and also, students do worse. Both in my observation and, you know, most of my colleagues, I've asked this, uh, people who teach in a variety of subjects, you know, do your students tend to do better in your online classes or your face-to-face classes? Overwhelmingly, they do worse in the online classes. And I don't know, there's something about having that personal face-to-face interaction that's not quantifiable and that can never be fully reproduced a relationship In online class scenario, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I think another factor of this—it's very easy, especially at that age—to be seduced by the convenience or the perceived freedom of doing classes online. And I think a lot of these students are being unrealistic or under-evaluative about their own learning styles, because too many of them reach college without ever evaluating themselves as learners, because that was some, yeah. always somebody else's job you know somebody else will tell you if you're doing well or not or if what you're doing works or not so they've probably you know in a lot of cases they they might have some instincts or some vague knowledge about patterns like do they do everything at the last minute do they need face to face interaction do they retain more by listening or by watching someone talk than by reading but they probably have not Done the hard work of developing a formula for how they learn best, so they're not being realistic about whether or not this is going to work for them.
0: Yeah, and they're not being realistic about whether they have the um, the self discipline to like make sure that they're doing things and submitting them on time and following directions when there's not someone there in person to like you know kind of beat you over the head with like, hey, this is due next week. Remember, you know. There's also the element of I mean, from the teacher's perspective, it's infinitely less satisfying to teach online in a conventional educational, you know, relationship than face to face because no matter what you do, you're never going to establish the same rapport that you can establish in person. You know, I I can't rely on my uh, charm and humor such as it is, um, you know, charisma even that, you know, good, good teachers are, are relying on you can't do that online. You can't replicate it. I mean, you can have, you know, little videos of yourself talking and audio of yourself talking and, you know, whatever, but it's, it's never going to be the same as that, that face-to-face interaction. And so it, it lowers the morale from the teacher's perspective. Now, I've talked to a bunch of my colleagues about this, and I've also talked to a lot of people in job interviews when I've been on job committees, hiring faculty members. And the interesting thing is whenever online comes up, it's unanimous. Every, everyone will say, Oh yeah, I, I find it much less enjoyable and satisfying than teaching face to face. I've never heard anyone say the opposite. I've never heard anyone, uh, either who works with me or who's trying to get a job at my college, say, "Oh yeah, I totally love the online interaction. It's way better than than in person, face to face." Blah blah blah. Again, you're you're harming teacher morale, and that's going to ultimately harm student morale. I think in some ways.
1: And, right. And another right.
0: thing I would I would point out about the online experience again in in this scenario where you're not talking about you're not talking about self motivated intrinsically motivated people like listening to a podcast because it's a topic they're interested in or whatever. But when you're in like a more of a school setting and it's an online class, we all know that when people get behind the wheel of a car and go driving around, they can suddenly become like way more rude and inconsiderate and and just, you know, turn into way more of assholes for lack of a better term than they ever would be just walking around dealing with people face to face. You know, like if, if you're walking down the aisle of a grocery store and someone accidentally steps in front of you, sort of cuts you off. Like most people don't immediately start yelling F bombs at that person. They'll oh excuse me, sorry. Yes. Um but but in the car you get road rage, right? Because you have that distance. You're no longer like face to face close proximity. And we all know that this can get even more ridiculous when you're in the online world. Like on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, people will go nuts with with hatred and, you know, all these social media mobs to destroy people over sometimes minor things. I believe you. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I I can't be the only person who's observed this trend. Right. But here's the thing. That same dynamic is at play. Now, it doesn't manifest in as extreme of a way because you still are an authority figure who's grading this person or whatever. Right. But nonetheless, that distance. I have a lot more students who will blatantly try to try something dishonest in an online class who would never do that in a face to face class. And I have students who will like try ridiculous uh, excuses and who will push back endlessly you know when a student like clearly didn't submit something they were supposed to submit by a certain time and they're just they keep pushing back endlessly like it's my fault that they didn't do something they were supposed to do it's like it's my fault that they didn't do it and got a, got a zero or something like that and i never have students who are that way when they have to look me in the eye and talk to me face to face i never have students um face to face students if if they forget to to turn in something and they get a zero they're more likely to, if they say anything at all, be like, Oh man, I'm, I'm really sorry. I really messed up. Gee whiz. That is my fault. <laughs> you know, but if they're online, like they'll send you endless emails, basically acting like it's all your fault that they didn't do something that they were supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, that's just another way that the online situation, um, uh, can, can be negative. And for a long time, I didn't do any online classes at work for a long time. I just. I stayed away from, I did it for a few years early on. And I ran into all this, all this uh, negativity and all these hassles. And, and I didn't find it, I didn't find it enjoyable or fulfilling or anything like that. And so for a while I was able to just not do it. But then basically what happened was it got to the point where the numbers in my history of Florida class were down enough that they said, basically the only way I could keep doing that class. And I enjoy that class. That Teaching it in person was so much fun. I usually had students that I'd had in a bunch of classes and we knew each other and we could be, you know, joke around a lot and whatever. And I know, I know a lot of weird, interesting stuff about Florida history too. So I could really like go off on some interesting tangents. And it was always one of the funnest classes I ever did. Right. And then, and then I had to do it all online. And that pretty much just like, you know, sucked all the enjoyment out of it on my, on my end. And, um, but that was the only way I could get enough numbers. So because online classes almost always get way more numbers than face-to-face classes, no matter what the class is. Right. And it's the same
1: kind of insertion of something that sounds like it might be very promising and have a lot of benefits into a system that a lot of people see as coercive, just like it is with with performance-based funding, right? Sounds like a good idea. That seems to be how things kind of work in the market, but it's insertion into this thing that is not Voluntary. Same problem here where this appears to offer freedom, but it's being inserted into the same system now, of course. Isn't everybody there voluntarily? Sure. But there's some attitudes that I think need to be accounted for. I've worked like you. You've worked with thousands of students. I probably have as well uh, during my career in education. I didn't get the sense that there was a consensus view of college as something that was a voluntary continuation of education, right? It was more of an obligatory extension of schooling. Now, I know that's not the rule for everybody, and some people really get a lot of great benefit out of the higher education environment and experience. But for most people—and and this has been indoctrinated into more than one generation of students— this is a mandatory extension of the 15,000-hour compulsory school system. So when you start trying to tinker with it and put uh, enticements or or benefits or fixes into it from the voluntary world, you're going to run into the, the very problems that we've been describing, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean I think something has to be like all voluntary to get all the benefit of of being voluntary. And, you know, yeah, it's 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 voluntary in a sense, in a formal, like legalistic sense for students to go to college or not. And it's even voluntary, like which college they choose to go to out of whatever it is they're able to get into. But then, you know, day to day, they act like it's involuntary a lot of the time. And to be fair, a lot of it's involuntary in terms of the specific classes that they have to take.
1: Yeah, of course. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, that's just a little bit of specificity on online education. We're talking about online college classes and we're really focusing on community college classes where there might be, at, at least in the beginning, less student buy-in, not to mention numerous problems with uh, study habits or work ethic. And online education, generally, very generally, sure, that's a great thing because people listening say, oh, online education, that's like School Sucks podcast or Dangerous History. Ask Jordan Peterson what he thinks of online education. Jordan, did you like working at the University of Toronto or having your YouTube channel, which has been more lucrative for you, right? The answer is obvious. So we're talking about a very specific thing. And the last piece of that conversation, I think, is a very good transition into talking about some student issues. Okay, everybody, we're going to cut it there for today. Check back over the weekend for part two.